It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to one day early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at penfed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. Good morning, listeners from around the world. This is Jim the Keys Bartender coming to you from Key Largo. How are you? From the Florida Keys, as always. It's episode 452. Boy, these numbers are getting high. I'm, you know, I screw them up left and right. I had, uh, we have a beautiful day here in the Florida Keys. I have situated my recording set up here with a view looking right out my window at these beautiful trees I have there and these lovely birds. I have cardinals, woodpeckers, pigeons, blackbirds, blue jays, mockingbirds. The mockingbirds, though, they don't come up too often. But, uh, yeah, I guess that's an old thing, old man thing. Because I started, ah, years ago, I started getting into birds not my own bird I'm talking about. Don't get all filthy and stuff like that. But you know what I'm talking about. Speaking about old guys, there's a show on Netflix. Michael Douglas and Alan Arkin. Is in it called The Kaminsky Method. Funny show. I recommend it if you if you like those guys. You know, it's, it's kind of like a irreverent, dirty kind of golden girls, right? Where the main characters are in their 70s and 80s. Well, Michael Douglas, Alan Arkin calls him a cell phone, a smartphone. I don't know, what what do we call it right now? A cell. He calls him up on a cell. And while he's on the phone, he gets a text message. He's talking to Michael Douglas. And Michael Douglas, who's kind of a little more hip to technology, he starts going, hey, you don't have to. And all of a sudden, Alan Arkin hangs up, takes a text message, gets calls him back. And before Michael Douglas can say anything again, they're talking. And all of a sudden, he gets another text message. And it goes back and forth. He keeps on hanging up. And you can see Michael Douglas wanted to say, hey, hold on. You don't have to hang up. You can just look at the text and stay on the phone. You know, it's funny that way because I've, in the restaurant bar I work, I'm kind of like the Pied Piper when it comes to stuff like that for the older patrons. I have patrons even my age and younger. They don't know how to operate 
their smartphones. You know, sometimes they you know, all sorts of things. Like they don't pick up Wi Fi, they they haven't had their no we they haven't had any emails come to their account because they didn't register their emails on their phone or just set up you know, I, I don't even know the term how to do it, but I know how to do it. I said, you know, it's all in the settings. I tell them it's all in the settings. All you have to do, all that stuff. But once you start doing it, the the uh, once you go down that rabbit hole and start helping people out, they come back. And I kind of ignored that rule that I learned that, yeah, if you start helping, they're always going to come back to you and stuff like that. And I don't have a problem helping people. It's just that sometimes I don't have the time. And one recently, last week, I gave my old cell phone, a smartphone, to one of our regulars, Howard. And he had had a flip phone for the longest time. Matter of fact, he had two flip phones at one time. And I'm just in the last year or two, and I'm going, what are you doing with two flip phones? I said, you know, you can get all your phone numbers. If you, want it. If you need to have two phone numbers, you can get it all on one phone. He didn't quite understand it. Tried to explain it to him how to, you can use voice over internet and all these things. And he, he didn't really want to hear it or no one else wanted to hear it. They just said, hey, listen, if you need an extra phone number, you need another phone. Well, that's not necessarily true. So I, I'm giving him my smartphone. And I'm thinking, oh, shit. I just realized this. He's going to come back to me every time he has a question for everything. He's not, I mean, first of all, older people, once they, once they get comfortable with it, they do it. But they just don't have that thing where the innate sense of technology and they don't talk about it and they don't see it on the horizon when people talk about this is what comes on, how you sync your phone up with your car, right? How you, if they accidentally hit, turn off their ringer, they don't know how to turn it back on. Or they don't have the letters large enough. Tons of things. It's just, that's the way it is with technology. Imagine that what, it was that way when, well, I mean, Telegraph, you really you only had people that could understand Morse code, did their transmission, the acceptance of Telegraph. And people knew how to read. But when phones started coming around, that had to be something different, you know, like this. You got to take the original phone. You had to click a couple times in order to get a hold of an operator, and the operator would do the connecting. You had to. It wasn't a direct call to call. Like you didn't make the call yourself. When originally, when the phone was invented and then put in the first prototypes that were and, and first models that were put in the house, they were just kind of directly connected to the local operator and you had to have the local operator and then and originally they were the local operator was in the house and would do it from their house and it was an exchange and they take you they have a board and in small rural areas they would connect you to bigger ones and that's the ones that at the main switchboards and that's what they were called switchboards then would take a wire and they would just one cable to another 
They take it from, let's say you're in Peoria, Illinois, and you want to talk to someone in Madison, Wisconsin, you Peoria, you say you're making a phone call to uh, Madison 8156, you know, whatever. And they would connect you to Wisconsin and or whatever the, the local switchboard was, and that person would connect you to uh, Madison, and the Madison operator would, you know, go directly to whatever exchange that was. And I won't even get into party lines. That means when the phone rang, everybody's phones had a different ringtone. You could tell, uh, like, there would be two rings for the Wilsons, for, for the Johnsons, and you'd pick up then. But the thing with party lines, people used to be able to listen to their neighbor's conversations. And they always, and I mentioned, I think I mentioned on a previous thing, everyone knew the neighbor that listened to the other conversations. And you could do it surreptitiously. It was kind of, it was more of a, you really had to be trusting. And you had to be careful discussing any types of plans if you had a secret romance or a surprise party for somebody or anything you were planning and any nefarious illegal thing you had to be you, you shouldn't do you shouldn't have done it on the phone you, nowadays you shouldn't do it on the phone because obviously it's just wrong but they there is there was a way for people to listen in on it but i didn't want to delve into that as deeply the weather is wonderful down here it's nice and warm and has been raining so everything's green uh, it's green out there, and we have a shitload of caterpillars all over the place becoming, I guess, expecting to become, going into the chrysalis and becoming beautiful butterflies. Well, we'll find that in the case, but they're eating all the all the plants that my wife has outside. You know, ideas change slowly to get back to what we were talking about, that people's process as a whole, populations, their ideas change real slowly. But I have seen it in my lifetime. Anecdotally, when I was a kid, when I was a young kid, living, when my father was being stationed overseas and we moved in with my grandmother, my mother and my sister and my brother, we moved to live with our, our grandmother in Philadelphia we lived in a working class neighborhood that was heavily Catholic. And back then, when my, uh, a year or two after this happened, my parents started going through a separation and divorce. And when they finally got divorced, it was so unusual in that neighborhood and population for people to be. And divorce was such a big deal back then. And we're talking in the early 70s. But I remember seeing TV shows and, well, not TV shows, old movies where it was a big deal when people spoke about the worst. People be married for the longest time for, with doing shit to each other. You'd be incredible. I mean, they do it to this day, people staying married. But it was amazing how so many people stayed married. There was a lot of unhappy old married couples when I was a kid. People think it's a beautiful thing that people stayed married for 50 years. Imagine if you hated that fucking person. And in your head, you just couldn't envision. You couldn't. You couldn't get a divorce. First of all, it was socially frowned upon in your religion. 
in, uh, especially around Catholics, you couldn't receive communion if you got divorced. If you were married in the church and got divorced civilly, because rarely, unless you're wealthy, that church wouldn't give you, they have to give you an annulment. And the annulment actually changes the history. It's funny, we're talking about history and changing. Annulment changes the history of your marriage. It means that you really were never married before. It's an annulment. It's an erasure of it, which is not divorce at all. Divorce accepts that there's differences around the couple and they're dissolving the civil union part of a marriage. But in the Catholic Church, or at least when they talk about annulment, they're erasing the original intent, meaning you weren't married at all because, you know, the person could say they were drunk, too young, all these things. There was different stipulations in the uh, the church. But when, in the 70s, you didn't see that many often do it. And I'd see it in, in a, a kid's cartoon, not cartoon, actually a kid's show. It was called... Uh, our gang or Spanky or, or something like that. Little Rascals. And there was one episode where we were talking about the family getting, uh, the father getting divorced. I think they ended up getting, the father and mother getting divorced. I think they eventually married, uh, staying together. And this was in the 30s. And in the 70s, you hear it so often. I remember in high school, though, it wasn't that unheard of. And that was quick. That was eight years, nine years later. I'm hearing about people getting divorced and stuff like that. My classmates, I went to a Catholic boys' school. I had a bunch of a bunch of friends, a couple friends, whose parents were waiting for the kids to graduate high school so they can get divorced. Because they were still, you say you didn't get divorced with you know your kids, you want to keep them stable. But then again, you ever see how some married couples act to each other? Sometimes it's best that they're apart. So that took a long time to change. And I was, today what sparked this idea was I was watching Lincoln, the movie Lincoln, with Daniel Day-Lewis. And oh boy, what a great fucking movie. And it was past the, it was about Lincoln. And it gave you a good insight of how he behaved and how he operated. And I think Daniel Day-Lewis did an excellent job depicting him. I never knew Lincoln, but I read a lot of biographies of him and the way people described him. He seemed to do a great job portraying him. But what they did is they took one section of Lincoln's life towards the end, the passing of the 13th Amendment that outlaws slavery in the United States. And I'm not going to go into detail on that, but what happened is most people have an understanding that in 1787, the establishing of the United States, 17 people incorrectly think 1776 because of the Declaration of Independence. Declaration of Independence just signaled the intent of the signers of the independence to split with the British Empire. And the establishment of a national government wasn't until the, the 1780s after the end of the Revolutionary War. But originally, you know, so so slavery existed in the United States or in, in North America 
or were the colonies prior to that, 1619. And so it's almost a hundred, almost 200 years later, it was ingrained in the former colonies. So they incorporated it into the Constitution without saying it explicitly. Except that the one of the things where they did mention explicitly was the two-thirds or three-fifths. Is it three-fifths or two-thirds? But what they did is, in order to give proper, in the views, in the eyes of the Southern delegates, where slavery was prevalent, more prevalent with the larger population of slaves, they wanted to be able to get enough representation to be your counterweight, the larger populations of the largely unslave-holding states of the north part of the colonies. But eventually, you know, nowadays people, I think, in the United States, only, you know, if you did a poll of voters, 95% would be totally against slavery. Yes, to this day and age, I believe there would be 5% of people who say, well, I don't see there was anything wrong with slavery. There, which is a big difference, though, because at the time, there was, a, there was, when the Civil War broke out, there was a sizable, there was a minority of people that were against slavery, and they were against it for multiple reasons. You had the people that were they were called radicals. They were abolitionists, radical abolitionists who believed that everyone was, um, they, that's what they called them. But nowadays they'd be called them normal people, good people. But they believed that uh, black people were equal in all manner to uh, you know, everyone else and that slavery was evil. And then there was people that said, that, well, they didn't like slavery just for the nature of holding a person in slavery. It was, it was sinful. And then there was people that economically view that's wrong to have a slavery-based economy because it, it restricted progress. And that was smaller. But, but they were all somewhat not on, you know, so that was probably probably more than 50% of the United States at the time was probably against slavery for different reasons. And then you had people that were like, they didn't think about it. They were poor. They had their own thing. And they, they really didn't give weighted thoughts or mullings about the issue of slavery in the United States. And then there were people that were economically tied to it. Meaning that's where their fortunes came from or their income came from. They had labor-intensive crops or jobs and they used the slave-based economy was the way they earned their family. And they believed in a, a creed, some of them. They had to believe in the creed that they were less, the people were less than uh, other people less than white people they had to believe that otherwise that would even be more evil when it says well listen we have this opportunity to do it there's people that accept it i realize that they're the same but we need them to work so we do that that would be like 
that would be the Hitler version. And there was a lot of things that ranged, a lot of views that ranged where people liked it purely economic reasons that they needed to have slavery. And then it spanned again, but to go all the way down where the people think, well, they're not, they're not really humans. They're more, more akin to animals. So that probably was a pretty side. And you had a lot of poor people, poor white people that felt disenfranchised anyway. And they had to look, they had to look down on people. I think that's today, today, that's his racism in itself where someone has to, they have to be able to point the finger at someone. This is the reason we are better than these people. At least we, we are more than these people. You know, that's what they, that's what they do to get by. Because if they just looked in the mirror and said, I'm the bottom rung of society, you can't. No one wants to look out from that area and say, I'm in the, the lowest rung you can be on. No, there is a lower one. There's criminals and there's slaves. At least not a slave. And I'm better than a slave. So they signed up for it and stuff like that. And it took a while. And then it wasn't until the passing of the 13th Amendment in 1865 that people had to take a look at it. And when it passed, when they were trying to pass it, if you, they were passing in a Congress that was made up of congressmen that were still in the face of the United States and its principles and the, the southern states that rebelled. They weren't included in that. So when it passed and it eventually passed, uh, in the end of January 1865, the um, for it passed, the leader of, they they called them the radical Republicans. He was an abolition uh, abolitionist for uh, decades. Thaddeus Stevens, a congressman from my home state of Pennsylvania, had to give a speech in front of Congress, and they knew that. Democrats at the time, it's funny because the Republicans were the ones for civil rights at the time and the Democrats were the ones that were kind of pushing back against it and the Democrats were going on more of a race, racist ideology that the 13th Amendment was raising black people up to be above or equal to the white man. I don't know how they got to be above if you're granting them the same rights. You know, because that doesn't necessarily work because there's always a group of people that are trying to restrict those rights that you grant that that are granted to them. But the the opposition to the 13th Amendment goaded Thaddeus Stevens, the congressman from Pennsylvania, to give a speech. And he wanted in his speech by goading him along and saying, what do you believe that? Black people are equal in all things to white people. And they wanted to do that to get the couple of Democrats that were going to vote for the passing of the 13th Amendment, which they needed, the, the Republicans needed at the time. They were trying to get that. He seems to admit this so he can get the people that were going along with the amendment that were on the fence to go back against it. But Thaddeus Stevens get on and says, this amendment, and he kind of misled people, but he did it in order to pass it. He said, this amendment just guarantees the equality before the law. Equality before the law. In order, because he believed they were equal in all, 
all men or black people were equal and all men are like we do today. But back then in the 1860s, it was a very extremist idea, maybe held by 10% of the people in the United States. White people, because they didn't poll black people about it. So he gave the speech saying that, and eventually the 13th Amendment passed and, and the, the Union won, and they imposed the new law on the, uh, the defeated, the former Confederate, the former Confederate states. So, and it took to this day, and there's still people out there that believe that they, you know, that people don't have the right to vote and stuff like that. Let's talk about real quick about the rule of law here in the United States for voting. Originally in 1787, only white property owners, citizens who were white property owners, were eligible to vote. And then it wasn't until the 1820s where they started phasing out property ownership as a requirement for voting. You were renting a property for someone from someone. You did not have the right to vote. You were not guaranteed the right to vote. If you were a white person, you would do No. And forget about women. Women... It wasn't until 1920, but we'll get through that. So the 13th Amendment outlawed slavery. 1820, the property ownership was beginning to be eliminated. The 14th Amendment in 1868 did the birthright citizenship. So if you were born in the United States, you were a U.S. citizen. Because people were starting to say, well, they're not really citizens. They never became citizens. They're from Africa and stuff like that. No, but they were born here. And they restricted the slave trade. So almost all the slaves in the United States by 1870, or the freed slaves, 1868, were, uh, the former slaves were born in the United States and they were given birthright citizenship. 1870, they... Uh, I, maybe they did pass that in 1870, but it's neither here nor there. But as soon as they did that in 1870, they you started getting this pushback from a lot of states that wanted to restrict the rights of this newly people to vote, new uh, the new citizens to vote. They, they had poll taxes, literacy tests, um, grandfather clauses. All those things. It was called the Jim Crow era. And Jim Crow laws were the respect, uh, re- restrict the um, the rights of voters. So you could keep certain people out of power and to keep the agenda going. The, the, you know, the white supremacist agenda was pretty much strong going to 1865 until 1965 when the Voting Rights Act passed. But there was a whole bunch of other things. There was women didn't get the right to vote until the 19th Amendment, 1920. There was in the 1800s, in the late 1800s, they passed the Chinese Exclusion Act. And that was in response to the immigration of Chinese to the United States, especially for construction of a railroad. And the gold rush, the people were worried about too many Asian people arriving here. And then you had um, 1965, the Voting Rights Act, that kind of had 
the impetus to put to block those restrictive policies such as tax, you know, poll tax, literacy tests, and grandfather clauses. They pushed, you know, it's a pushback by the federal government. But it wasn't the Voting Rights Act had to be reinstituted every couple of years. Ronald Reagan had to do it in 1982 in order to get it to go for another 25 years to 2007. In 2013, the Supreme Court walked back a lot of the provisions of the Voting Rights Act, the Voters' Rights Act. I mean, so now they, you have polling place closures, voter ID laws, uh, restriction of early and expanded voting hours. With no explanation of why to do that. Why would you... And I understand that the one legitimate argument they may have for mail-in voting is to worry about fraud. But closing polling places, they close uh, polling places in black areas to restrict access. And... The voter ID laws and all that just make poor people have a harder time obtaining an identification. And early voting, because you, I mean, yeah, a lot of poor people are, they don't have the opportunity to take off. On, they, got, they have the kind of jobs where you just don't take off from. Expanded vote hours and things like that. There was. They had to pass a law. So this they're walking back this. And that's why in recent elections in the last 20 years in black areas, especially urban areas of, of the United States and in the South and the West, where you had a Republican government in power, state government, they were, they were closed polling places, make... They were consolidated, make them further away, reduce the amount of voting machines in certain areas that they opened up in the black areas. So you'd have these long lines. And that's why you start seeing the laws incorporated in in these new voting restriction act. You know, they, they're saying because of mailing, the mailing ballot, there's fraud. But what about bringing water to someone to stand in line for? you know, 10 hours to vote, food and water. Why would provide, they call that electioneering? You know, someone provides you water and food. Well, if you provided the polling places and they expanded hours, you wouldn't have to restrict food and water being given to the people that are standing in line. If there's a long line of people left to vote, that means you don't have enough voting machines. And you go into a lot of these white areas, there's never a line. There was hardly ever a line. When I was in, in uh, Philadelphia, down in Florida, there's, I go in there, I may wait like one minute after I identify myself with my driver's license. Yes. It's not hard to do. Yes, I do understand that, but um, but people, what the way I'm trying to express this is that people's ideas change over time, especially see how they changed the slavery from 
1787 to 1865, and then with the passage of the Voting Rights Act, 1965, passed under a president who was from Texas, and who should have been all rights by the way he would raise up a poor white guy in Texas, Lyndon Johnson, who should have held, you think he would have held some, and he could have been, he could have been a closet racist and stuff like that, but he did, he did champion the rights, the Voting Rights Act, and was one of his crowning achievements as president. He viewed it as one of his crowning achievements as president. One of the fail, failures may have been Vietnam, but the Voting Rights Act was great. And people's ideas don't change because of law. They change over time. But history will eventually catch up to you. Think of all the things that eventually the way we view people, like ancient societies that sacrifice virgins, or the way people used to marry off 12-year-old girls to adult men. I believe 95% of the, of, of, you know, if you took a poll, 95% of the U.S. would be for that. And there'd still be a hardcore 5% say, yeah, I would like that. I would, I would like to be married to a 12-year-old. There are, if you could say it, I'm, there are some people that probably would be reticent to say it because they say, well, I'm a, you know, but there's di- there's more creepers out there and you expect but I'd say it's a hard fast there's people there's a small group of people that are diehard racist and all these different things there would be a sizable minority of people and I I knew people I worked with people that believed on one aspect that property ownership should be a requirement for voting in the United States which would be reverse enfranchisement, It'd be disenfranchisement. Kind of like, uh, I had the view this guy would definitely like the United States to be like Gilead in the in the TV show, The Handmaid's Tale. If they had the opportunity, women would not be able to hold office, would not be able to vote. Right. They're just there. So all the gains we made with racial justice, citizenship, immigration rights, gender rights, gay rights, all that, in the views of some people, could be erased. I'm saying, and, and it could it could happen in the next election. It could uh, would it happen? No, it probably won't happen. But there's always this push. To go back. It's called uh, being a reactionary. A reactionary is someone who reacts to the progression of change that occurs. And you just think of the change that occurs from you from the time you were a child to your adult. As long as you're open to things. Maybe some people that didn't change at all. They're still same now hold the same ideas they had as a child as they do as an adult. But people change and society changes with them a lot of times. Just think of it. They're like divorce. If you're old enough to remember uh, 
Lyndon Johnson, you know, at that time, divorce was a big deal. Used to say shit about hippies. Now we're legalizing marijuana. Over, I think, in polling, like over 70% of the people believe that marijuana should be legalized. If you talk if you talk to people in the 1960s about that, oh my God, that demographic, you'd be... A, in, if you endorsed the decriminalization of marijuana in the 1960s, generally you'd probably be a member of the... considered a member of the counterculture. Nowadays, if you endorsed it, you can be considered a business magnet, meaning, oh, well, I'd like to invest in a agricultural endeavor that cultivates medical marijuana or recreational marijuana because that's the way it's going to be. It's going to be the way it's going to be because it's always a dollar sum gain. There's going to be re- there's revenue that can be made through taxes and the sale of marijuana and the cost to implementing laws against it don't generate Income, except for the people that are in the penal system. If you a private, a, the private penal system should not have a say on what's criminal should be criminalized. Should not have an opinion. The penal system should not have an opinion about what is criminal. Right? Think about it. Think. Let me say. If you're, you make your money from housing people in a jail, your private prison system, you should not have an ability to lobby for laws that would criminalize things. Now, you shouldn't actually have an opinion on that stuff. You say, listen, we're just here to uh, fulfill your sentence. And your sentence says you're here to five to eight years. That's it. But that's not the way it is. Because the more people you have, you have to have more crime and get more people. Because it's not that there isn't enough criminals out there to hide. They just, the ones they, it's easier to catch certain ones. And it's easier to jail certain criminals. It's, you know, white collar criminals, people that are stealing money by illegal financial dealings. They're harder to catch. And they're certainly well-defended legally. They're much more well-defended than poor people. They get tripped off for having some pot. And I know, I realize some people make their money from selling pot. So poor, there's going to be certain segments of society, poorer people and lower economic that will not will lose a source of their income. But they will also, uh, once you emancipate people for marijuana possession and you restore their rights, you also open up to more generating more income because then you have more people that aren't on the dole. You're on the dole when you're in the prison system. It costs a lot of money to keep someone in the prison. And it would make a lot of sense to release people that are nonviolent from prison, that are less likely. It's better to keep spend your dollar on the violent, antisocial, you know, brutal people out there. And to seek some, some have to be in prison for a long term because of the brutality of their act and how 
how much they veer off from the norms of society. That would make sense. You know, someone that kills people, rapes people, attacks people in, in different ways, or violent violent robberies and nonviolent robberies. They 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 have a place in the penal system. And some of it some of it could be some of it could be re, rehabilitatory. A real a rehabilitative. And they could come back. But some of them you're just sitting on them for a while. But why do you have all these hundreds of thousands of people that are there doing things just to earn a buck. And they're going to have to earn it some other way. I understand. Once someone decides to sell an illegal substance in order to make money, they're kind of like pretty much signing the the contract on their future. They're saying, well, this is how I make my money on selling black market items. It's a black market item right now in certain states. When you tell someone, if I tell someone I have a marijuana license and stuff like that, the, uh, the, the buy... And people say, well, I don't need one to buy. And I say, no, but you're dealing with the black market. You're giving money to people that are supporting a system. And the government is working against it to restrict that, too. So it's a give and take there. Get yourself outside of that. And the government should get outside of that. And we can save a lot of money doing that. But those views are changing. And they're eventually going to change. And I assume it's going to be probably by, what's it, 20? 2021 by 2025, you'll be hard-pressed to find a state where it's illegal. They're going to be last one, and people won't understand that. And the same thing's going to go with people that are restricting voting rights. They're going to try to do it again. They may get to do it again. They may get to do it again. They may get the right. In 2022, they're talking about the former president, the possibility of him running for Congress and becoming, if they're able to win back the House of Representatives, becoming a Speaker, uh, Speaker of the House and then an impeachment president. Or the other crazy idea that he's going to be reinstated in August. And if you listen to the show, obviously you're not a believer in those stupid, I, I'm going to say stupid, stupid crazy theories. It's You're not all worthless and stuff like that just because you believe it. You're just... Sadly misled. Sadly misled and angry and things like that. Like the people that were against freeing the slaves. You know? I guess it's like having a tiger. And you might believe and say, Hey, I had the tiger as a kitten. And it grew up. Now it's a man-eater. And I can't set it free because he could come back and eat me. Well, you should have known that in the first place. The tiger didn't choose to be, you know, kept in your house. It's a wild animal. I'm not against slavery, but it's, it deserves to be free. And you're being afraid of the tiger. That's your fault. You propagated the idea that it's proper to keep a wild animal. Now it's fully grown. What are you going to do about it? Well, a lot of us believe you should let it go. Not, obviously, we can't let it go in a pop, which is different from the freedom, but in a habitat that's suitable for it. 
for slavery. That's just releasing. Just like birds. If you have a bird, if you have a bird, you keep a wild bird in a cage. No, you let it go. Right? That's why you shouldn't take it from it. That's why you shouldn't take it from its natural environment. You shouldn't have done it in the first place. But once it's accustomed to your local environment, it'd be crying to put it back. Once there's no, you know, it's like when people take take animals and try to put them in a, you know, oh, there's a bunch of there's a bunch of wolves over here. We'll just put this wolf over here, and then the wolf pack tears it apart. Whatever. Nope. That's not the way. You just, in the first place, you shouldn't have kept it in captivity. Second place, you should release it in a place that makes sense for it. It would thrive. Where it would thrive, not just let it go. So, and that's where Voting Rights Act and stuff is making, ensuring that it'll be, you know, won't be hunted down and put back into captivity. It all come. We view we view it. People grow out of it. They will eventually. History will look back and see people that were for expanded. You know this craziest thing in Texas where anybody can carry a gun now. Uh, there was a, a recent story where this guy in I think it's Alabama, Mississippi. Is just reading it today. He had shot his wife in the arm, or or. His, girlfriend and they took his handgun away and they they gave it back to him and within 16 days of giving him the handgun back he ends up killing the woman even the defense attorneys for the gentleman who shot when he originally shot the woman in the arm wondered why the state would restore yeah, they would restore, they won't protect your right to vote, but they'll protect some fucking lunatic's right to have a gun. And eventually people are going to look at it and say, well, yeah, U.S. was pretty crazy about the weapons thing, where they gave a weapon to everyone and think that if everyone had one, we'd be safer. Yep, yep put it crazy. Give a crazy person a gun, right? And you, yeah, you know, if you have your gun, you might be ready if you see the guy walking down the street to get him. But if he just decides to pull it out and start blasting people and stuff like that, just chances are you won't. And you should see if you ever seen those old West movies and stuff like that, or The Unforgiven, where Clint Eastwood said he plays what's his name, William. Whatever his name was, when he was talking to someone about how he ends up killing someone in a gunfight, he says, once you pull out a gun and you start shooting people, people don't know what to do. They just, he just says, all you have to do is remain calm and keep on shooting people. That was right. So the only people that remain calm when they're shooting people seems to be crazy people. So it's funny. The only person that stop a bad guy, a crazy person with a gun, is a good crazy person with a gun. You know, that should be more the accurate thing. Or a trained good person with a gun. 
which is a police tactical team. But, yeah, everyone has a right to defend themselves. You wouldn't have to defend yourself if the person had the gun in, in front of the place, in, in the first place. Yes. And there would be all these different arguments. I went on for a long time. This is Jim the Keys bartender. I'd like you to thank you for listening. Uh, this will be part of history. Maybe not a big part of history. But it will be history. It'll be in perpetuity's sake, in, in, you know, unless society collapses and we won't, don't have any machines to be able to play this back. Maybe some future society will play it back and say, listen, there were some demented people that were doing their shows. This guy did five years worth of shows and he said some crazy stuff. I mean, we tend to agree with some of this stuff, but he didn't go far enough. They're they're going to see they're going to see me as someone that's going to be a, a moderate, not an extremist. But if you do like the Keys Bartender Show, please share this with your friends. Like us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or and or send me if you have any questions. Send your questions to Jim at keysbartender.com. Thank you very much, and have a great talk to you later. Bye.